So lights are coming on and our servers are preparing to collect the offering, which is way earlier than normal. So we're actually going to give you a moment for some of you. You need to get prepared for that. And so in the meantime, I just want to say we're, we're trying something. You, you saw it today and in fact, a, a, a few weeks back as well. We're trying just on Sunday mornings to shake up uh, some of what we do in terms of our approach to worship. That we'll have weeks that we have the full team up here and go ahead and have the, the driving base and all those things that we love. And then there are going to be other weeks that we're going to go ahead and cut back a little bit and do the more acoustic version of the songs. And I just want to say part of the value of that, there's a practical value of giving different members of our team a break. But there's, I think, the real value that comes from it is even this song that we just sang. We're normally, we normally sing that thing with energy. I don't know about you, but they know, listening to me, I kind of scream that thing. I, I'm surprised they can stay in tune when we're doing that song. And so to be able to just bring that back, strip it back, I think what happens sometimes when we do that is we actually discover words that have become, you know, just part of what's going on up here. And, and we'll get hit by a line or a word and we go, oh, when did they put that in there? Oh, it's been there all along, but boom, 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 you were like in this part and you missed it. So, so you're going to see that from time to time. Some weeks will be acoustic, some weeks we'll have normal band, and we're even trying to work the students in there too. Just some uh, different things that I hope that will, will bring freshness to your worship. So here come our servers now, and as they do, I do have to say something that's been on my mind quite literally since last Sunday and Monday. And I try to leave the world out there if I can, but every once in a while we just got to talk about something. So let's talk about football for just a minute. I find it atrocious. I find it outrageous. I found it sickening. I cannot believe, honestly, honestly, that in our own church there would be a child who would dare to beat his pastor of fantasy football. I, I just find it repugnant and awful. I thought we trained these children better. And, you know, a high schooler that has the gall not to unset his lineup when he plays me, I don't understand that. I really don't get it at all. Truly raising a dis disrespectful generation of children, something's got to be done. And so what happens? Well, the youth pastor's not in town. Even he's not going to do anything about this grand injustice. I... It, he didn't only beat me. Worst beating I've ever taken in my life in a fantasy sport. I mean, he clobbered me. So I'm not naming names, but Bryson, Lakin. There are other churches in town. You may want to check them out. So anyway, oh my word, beating up the pastor. How horrible. So um, let me see if I can get through this part. Monday morning, uh, Kim went down to Springfield because her dad is not doing well. He's been in the hospital for two weeks with uh, pneumonia. He's got, a, he's got a disease that basically operates a lot like leukemia. And so we've always been told that there would come a point that um, antibiotics aren't going to work and the blood products they're giving him aren't going to work. And we've had to, over the weekend, kind of go through that decision-making process of saying, it seems like it's not working, now what? And so now what happens tomorrow? Tomorrow, dad, uh, Kim's dad will come home and we'll spend whatever time we have left uh, with him on the surf. Uh, it's been a, a really beautiful week, and I appreciate those of you who have been uh, praying for us throughout this process. I know for a lot of you, you've already gone through the, the process of losing a mom or a dad, and um, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a painful season. You know what that's like. So uh, pray for my wife especially, of course, and uh, she's, she, you know, if you know her, you know this. 
She's the rock everybody depends on. I, I just kind of sit in the background and act like I'm part of this thing. But she's, she's the one that keeps all the plates spinning and the world going. She's the one out demanding Tylenol from nurses. And they don't need nurses at that hospital when Kim shows up. You know, she just, good night. If she could shoot the stuff in her veins, she'd do it herself. I mean, she's, she's good at that. So pray for her to be strong. Pray that this will be a... Just a beautiful time for our family as, as we say goodbye to, I say it without exaggeration, truly one of the most godly men I've known on this earth. Never known anybody like him. And in fact, you know, every once in a while people will kind of do that. You know, the worst thing about me is I'm, I'm just so loving. You know, that kind, of, that kind of backhanded, yeah, you're a humble one, all right. Um, for him, I, 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 seriously, the, the worst parts about Dave Fry are the ways in which he has exhibited the virtues of God to such a degree that um, it's just crazy, it's just crazy. So uh, we, we just appreciate you praying about that. And uh, anyway, so John knew that I ran down Friday to help with my father-in-law and he texted and said, hey, can I preach for you? And it's like, okay, Friday, Sunday, that's not fair. I said, how about we do this? Let's do a 50-50. So he's going to do the hard part. I'm going to do the easy part. All right, so John's coming to do the first 15 minutes well, 16, 17, 18, whatever it grew to. And then I'll be back for the rest. There, stay here for a second. Uh, would you join me? Let's just pray uh, for the Pep family right now. Father in heaven, thank you for, uh, for Kim's dad, for Dave Fry, for the man that you made him to be, for the influence that he has had in, uh, on, uh, on Kim's life, on Dennis's life, on the life of their family, and on the life of this church. Uh, Father, we pray for your mercy uh, in his body. We pray for your mercy uh, as, as the days and the weeks unfold. We don't know what they hold. We don't know what they look like, but you do. You do. I pray that you would be gracious uh, to our friends and that you would, you would protect them. You'd minister to them. That you would just be unreasonably generous uh, with your love for them. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, somehow I'm, I'm supposed to transition from that into, uh, into the morning. Um, I'll do my best. Uh, I actually, after hearing about the beating uh, from Bryson, have a completely newfound uh, respect for the people in the front row. I mean, not that I didn't before, but I really do, uh, really do have a lot of respect for what students have to go through uh, managing different subjects, different topics, and, and it's a big relief when it's all finally done and behind them. I remember because years ago, I found myself in that uh, place between high school and job or college or whatever, and I needed something. And both fortunately and unfortunately for me, uh, my grandfather was a carpenter. Uh, and he, had, he said I could come and work for him. Now, my grandfather never had a lot of money. Uh, he and my grandmother lived in a very small house in Maywood, Illinois, uh, for my entire life, my entire existence. Uh, they just didn't have a lot. Now, my grandfather, in addition to not having a lot, was also a very tough boss, very tough, tough as nails. He expected perfection from himself, and he expected perfection from those who worked for him as well. And there was more than a few times that, I mean, he let me know I wasn't measuring up 
to the standard. And it was hard. It was hard to work for him and to hear the criticism day after day, even though I'm sure I deserved it. But there's one thing that I will always remember about that summer. It's not the criticism. It's the fact that when it came time to pay me, my grandfather was ridiculously generous. He paid me far more than I deserved. And I remember being blown away at how this man, who didn't have very much, could be both critical on the one hand and absurdly generous at the same time. I never forgot it. The man was generous, though he had very little. We tend to admire generous people. We like being around people who are eager to share their time, their money, or labor with no expectation of being paid back. Why is that? Is it because we expect something from them or because they hope they'll do, we hope that they will do something for us? Well, not really. Because we admire acts of generosity whether we happen to be the recipient or not. Perhaps it's simply because generosity is uncommon in the world that we live in. Seeing someone doing something or giving something to help someone out without the expectation of payment is uncommon. It's unusual. And so we take note of it. Taking it one step further, I think that we, that admiration stems from a, a recognition that these people seem to have a remarkable sense of freedom. Freedom to give without counting the cost. Freedom to think of the well-being other, of others before thinking of their own well-being. And freedom from worry or care. Somehow, a sense of freedom and a heart of generosity are linked Together, as people who profess faith in Jesus, we should be people who are marked by generous hearts, if for no other reason, simply because we realize how generous God has been with us. At its very core, generosity starts with God. Think of our world from God's perspective for a minute. Just just look at it from his viewpoint. You have a world full of rebels who mock you from the day that they're born. Rebels who persist in sinful habits and patterns over lifetimes and centuries. A world full of rebels who deserve only God's wrath. This is our world before the coming of God's Son. In order for God to offer us rebels a sliver of hope, a chance at redemption, would cost him dearly. It would cost him his own son. Let's briefly take a look at three verses that demonstrate the kindness and the generosity of God towards us. All from Romans. First in Romans 3, 23 and 24, familiar words that say, For everyone is sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God in his grace freely, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us, freed us. From the penalty of our sins. Freely. Freed. The cost of that freedom, as we know, we just partook in. The the penalty that Christ paid on our behalf. That's generosity. Romans 5.8 God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. 
Note that there was no guarantee that we would respond to God's love. He didn't have a guarantee of that. Only the chance, only the possibility that some of us would. The cost was high, but our generous God deemed the possibility, the chance of saving our lives to be worth that cost. That's generosity. Romans 8.32, since he, God, did not even spare his, even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? God didn't spare that which was most precious to him, was most valued to him, his own dearly loved son. That's generosity. Our God is a generous God who graciously forgives the sins of rebels in order to make them part of his family the way that he originally designed. God wants us to be generous people as well. In part, we know it because he commanded it of his people when he gave the law to Moses in the Old Testament, telling the people that when dealing with those who were poor in Israel, and there would be many who were poor in Israel, that they should, according to Deuteronomy 15.8, Be generous and lend them whatever they need. Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at the life of David. Uh, David, in Psalm 37, 21, wrote this. The wicked borrow and never repay. But the godly, the godly, those who follow God, are generous givers. David had a son, Solomon. Solomon followed up his father's psalm with these words of wisdom in Proverbs 11, 25. The generous will prosper. Those who refresh others will themselves be refreshed. See, verses like these help us understand God's desire for us when it comes to being generous. We get it. We understand that's what he wants. But how do we do it? How do we grow generous hearts? Does it happen automatically? Or do we need to take some series of steps in order to accomplish that, in order to get there? How do we do it? Well, this morning we're going to look at two stories from two different people who both had generous hearts, one from the Old Testament and one from the New. And as we look at these people, we'll try to see if there are any common threads that we can identify in what they did to help us take some steps toward becoming more generous ourselves. In the Old Testament, in the book of 1 Kings, we read about a prophet of God whose name was Elijah. Elijah's job was to deliver messages from God to the people of Israel. One of the messages that he delivered to a very bad Israelite king named Ahab was that God would exercise his authority over the weather to prevent it from raining for a period of years. This caused a drought that was very severe in the land. But God made special provisions for Elijah. And we pick up the story in 1 Kings 17, verse 8. It says, Then the Lord said to Elijah, Go and live in the village of Zarephath, near the city of Sidon. I have instructed a widow there to feed you. So he went to Zarephath. As he arrived at the gates of the village, he saw a widow gathering sticks and asked her, Would you please bring me a a little water in a cup? As she was going to get it, he called out to her, Bring me a a bite of bread too. But she said, I swear by the Lord your God that I don't have a single piece of bread in the house, 
and I have only a handful of flour left in the jar and a little cooking oil in the bottom of the jug. I was gathering a few sticks to cook this last meal, and then my son and I will die. But Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go ahead and do just what you've said, but make a little bread for me first. Then use what's left to prepare a meal for you and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. There will always be flour and olive oil left in your containers until the time when the Lord sends rain and the crops grow again. So she did, as Elijah said. And she and Elijah and her family continued to eat for many days. There was always enough flour and olive oil left in the containers, just as the Lord had promised through Elijah. Don't miss how huge of an ask this was from Elijah to the widow. He was essentially saying, look, I know you don't have much oil or flour, but go make me a pancake first. 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 As in, before you make anything for yourself or your son. Now, of all the people in all the land of Israel, who was the person who could least afford to help Elijah in this way and give him something to eat? This widow. Where was her next meal going to come from? Certainly not from a husband. Certainly not from a job. She had nothing. Nothing. This woman simply could not afford to give. She couldn't afford it. Making pancakes for Elijah? First, first, almost seems cruel. She had so little to give. But she did have something. And what she had, she gave. She gave it in faith. Elijah told her that the God of Israel said he would provide for her, and God came through. He did provide, just as he said he would. So what's the difference between simply hearing that God would provide and actually experiencing the supernatural hand of God acting on her behalf? Faith. Belief. She took God at his word, and he did what he said he would do. The result? was nothing short of remarkable. It was a miracle that God provided her for her in the way that he did. So that's the first story. Let's transition our focus to a scene that now unfolds in the New Testament in front of Jesus and his disciples. It's another widow described in Luke 21, verses 1 to 4. And it says, While Jesus was in the temple, he watched the rich people dropping their gifts into the collection box. Then a poor widow came by and dropped in two small coins. I tell you the truth, Jesus said, this poor widow has given more than all the rest of them, for they have given a tiny part of their surplus. But she, poor as she is, has given everything she has. I imagine this scene to be very much like sitting in a food court at a mall, watching people going here and there, scurrying back and forth, Kind of a busy scene, a lot going on. And Jesus and his disciples, they're people watching. 
just seeing what people are doing, when all of a sudden Jesus takes the magnifying glass and focuses it in on this one person. And he draws their attention and our attention to what she's doing. The disciples watched as a poor widow drops 100% of what she has into the collection box at the temple. Much like the widow in 1 Kings, she's given it all, everything. She held nothing back. And Jesus makes what must appear to be just an audacious statement to his disciples that she gave more than everyone else. His disciples must have been thinking, how can you say that? Those two small copper coins are not going to pay for the new family life center in the temple. It's not going to happen. How can it matter? How can it matter at all? But God says this. It matters. It matters a lot. Here's what we need to see in this story. God is far less interested in what those two small coins were going to be used for and far more interested in what was going on in that woman's heart. You see, the heart is where we relate to God. And that is why Jesus put the spotlight directly on her. Do you think that she ever knew that Jesus mentioned her? Probably not. Do you think that she felt like she gave more than those who were pouring large sums of money into the collection box? Probably not. So why did she do it? Why would someone who has so little give so much? Well, perhaps it is simply because she had grown a heart of generosity and she was acting in a manner that consistently reflected what had been grown in her heart by God over a long period of time. Her generous heart looks a lot like the generous heart of God who gives without counting the cost, because he loves us so much. Do you think this was the first time that she ever put anything in the collection box? I seriously doubt it. We can wonder what her life was like before she was a widow. Did she and her husband go together to the collection box to give a portion of what they had to God? Perhaps. The text doesn't say. We're not told. We don't know. But what we do know is that there is a generosity in this woman toward God that is tenacious and firm. Where did it come from? What is its root? Well, much like the widow with Elijah, it was rooted in faith. Belief. Belief in several things. First, belief that what she had, though it was all she had to live on, wasn't hers to begin with. It belonged to God and her obedience to him was more important to her than her next meal. Maybe that's why Jesus pointed her out. Maybe that's why he brought the spotlight onto her. She had belief, belief that God would take care of her and that her security came from God, not two small copper coins. The hollow sound that those coins made as they hit the bottom of the collection box may have seemed like nothing, but as it turns out, it was a lot. As it turns out, she was right. Whether she knew it at the time or not, she knows it now in heaven as her, her story is forever captured by the words of Jesus. She gave everything she had 
interesting that he would use those words because two chapters later, we read about the crucifixion of Jesus where he gave everything he had in the greatest display of generosity that the world has ever seen. Now, last night, uh, on our way home, uh, last night Susan and I went to uh, a band uh, competition, got to see Jessica play. It was great. Manuka did awesome. Uh, on our way home from that, I brought up today's sermon and uh, did something very dangerous. I asked my very practical wife a very practical question. I said to her, what would it look like for us to follow the example of these widows? And I expected her to say something like, well, John, uh, we do a good job and we don't need to give any more than we do. Or perhaps something like, uh, you know, we could give another small bit. I was looking for some affirmation. I wanted to hear from her that we were doing okay. And her answer stopped me cold. It stopped me in my tracks. And it immediately exposed the hypocrisy of the question. She simply said, what would it look like to do what these widows did? Give it all. And I quite literally laughed out loud as she said it. And all of a sudden, as I laughed, the laugh stuck in my throat. Because I realized, all of a sudden, she was right. What these two widows did all of a sudden came crashing into my own world. Am I willing to give it all? All of it? Really? My initial reaction was, I can't afford it. It's not practical. It doesn't make sense. You know, it would be very easy to walk away from these two nice Bible stories and give them no more attention than we've given them here this morning. But I have a hard time imagining myself or our church, walking up to these two women in heaven, these bastions of generosity, and saying, well, I gave some, I I gave a small portion of what I had, and I stopped there. Well, I just couldn't afford to give any more than that. I couldn't afford it. You gave all you had. I gave little because my security was wrapped up in what I owned, in my two small copper coins. Two small coins that have no real power to change anything in my life. I looked to those coins to give me something that they could never deliver. Security. Instead of looking to God, sometimes I look to my stuff. And I guess in the end, I'm not as generous and free as I thought I was walking in this morning. Free to give with a completely generous heart, ignoring the personal cost. Because that's the point. It's not about measuring the cost and figuring it out. It's about whatever you want, God, whatever you want, I'm willing. May God grow generous hearts in us as we give ourselves, our time, our money, and our service in response to him, in response to the generous gift of grace that he's given to us. What may come? What may come if we live the gospel together? What may come if unsatisfied with polite conversation, with controlled encounters, with keeping quiet, we risk stepping into our intended adventure 
and hasten fleet-footed into the bright white of lives as they are made to be lived. What may come if we endeavor together to resemble Christ, believing in the value of others in such a way that elevates their comfort, their joy, their hopes, and their dreams above our own. Forsaking the things we are told should matter to us, laying down our rights, sacrificing our positions, giving up our means to discover new ends, risking all for the sake of the gospel, doing this for the sake of the gospel, unified for the sake of the gospel. What may come if together we step boldly into the staggering idea that many can be one because one died for many? Will others stare in wide-eyed wonder, compelled by the love that consumes us, the gospel that unites us, the spirit who defines us? What may come if we trade a common kind of community for an uncommon unity? And with hands clasped tight, we approach the edge of the cliff of God's unknown. And step off together. I love that video. The question is asked, I'm sure you caught it, what may come? What would happen if we jumped in unreserved, unrestrained? What would happen if we lived like this? What would happen if we gave all we've got? You know, the, really, the video really speaks to generosity, even though it never mentions a thin dime. When we define generosity in terms of nickels and dimes, wallets and offerings, we totally miss the point. Not only that, we degrade the true issue. What I give in an offering plate or for a worthy cause is potentially evidence of a generous spirit. The check is not the issue. The heart, the heart is the issue. It is not a matter of being generous with my stuff. The real question is, am I generous with myself? Do I give me? I already mentioned, but this past week I spent a day at the bedside of one of the most generous people I've known in this walk on this earth. He's not rich, but he is free. He is free to give. And the thing is, as our family reflects on on the life of our dying father, our stories of his generosity are, are not about the gifts he's given us or the dinners he's bought us or the cars he's provided for us. They're about the fact that he always, always, always gave freely of himself. If you had an emergency, and he'd be the one to define the emergency. I mean, emergency was, Dad, what, 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 what do I need? What, what do you need? How can I help? And the guy would be off to the races in his car, get up here as fast as pa- hammer in hand. What do we need to build? We came to a point where we had to stop telling him what was going on in our life because he would have just moved in to help us all the time. He gave freely of his time, his abilities, his resources. In reality, he gave him to us all the time. I was there on Friday to help him physically. Thursday, he was having difficulty even bringing a spoon to his mouth to eat. He was weak. This man we've known as a pillar of strength has grown so frail. Ironically, his name is David. 
just like the guy we've been talking about in the Bible the last few weeks. As I sat with him on Friday, helping him through this final leg of his journey, I watched. I wanted to learn about this page in his life, about, about this part of this very generous man. How does a man who's been told you might not live through the weekend live? What does a godly man do who has been told if he makes it through the weekend, he'll need to decide whether to discontinue treatment that is diminishing in effectiveness and call in hospice workers? What does a man do who thinks by Sunday night I might be in heaven? Final actions, final conversations, final moments. Much like the ones we've been looking at really in First Chronicles. While David was not dying, he was not terminal, his life was winding down. His final days are here. What choices do you make if you know this is it? For both King David and Dave Fry, they are men who, as John stated, have cultivated a lifestyle of generosity. It wasn't instantaneous. It didn't happen all at once. They cultivated it. When they had nothing, and both men had nothing early in life, when they had nothing, they gave it all. And so my father-in-law spent Friday making phone calls. I got to sit in as he made call after call to the people he loves. He wanted to share his final thoughts, give a final blessing. And the way he'd end would say, I just wanted you to hear it. From my voice, one more time, I love you. Goodbye. It was gut-wrenching. And it was so sweet. I never would have wanted to miss that. There he was on his deathbed, not collecting, not hoarding, but giving. Giving freely. Giving himself freely. Thinking of the pain of the people around him and giving to them what little he has left, which in reality is so much. I took the day in and realized just how very blessed I have been to have such a generous man in my life. How would you live if you knew you were dying? If this was it? I think it's a great test question because our minds go in one of two directions. We either compose the bucket list of things we want to see and experience before we are gone, or we think like the Davids, the one in the Bible and the one in my family. They ask, what do I have left to give and who needs it most? This question is a valid measure of the depth of our generosity. At the core of Christian character is a spirit of generosity, inspired by our Savior and motivated by his selfless example. He did not give so we could have. No, he gave so we could have, so we could give. John did a great job sharing the, the nature of generosity. And in fact, I already told you, he, he exhibited a, a nature of John, his nature of generosity today. Throughout the week, he's been, he's been out of town. And yet when he learned of our family's sadness, he offered to teach today to allow us the space to be sad and to grieve. And you know, I responded with, how about half? His half was the teaching. My half is going to be the details. I was told by Brian Reiser, our building project manager, that steel will be delivered tomorrow morning at 7.30. And we should see heavy equipment moving in to reshape the earth this week. The gun has officially sounded. The race is on. And today I want to just share with you some of the financial details of what's going on. I'm going big picture. 
I know for some of us, numbers are like the hum of a lullaby. They lull us to sleep, okay? So we're going to kind of stay at 30,000 feet, maybe dip down from time to time. But uh, to just give you an idea of the bigger picture of what's going on. As we said recently, the amount needed to complete this project would be a million dollars. Through careful stewardship, we've been able to put a considerable amount toward this project already to bring it down to that amount. Our approach, as we said last week, is not to do a campaign and to announce a goal. We make it simple. The need is a million dollars. We believe it is our place to make the need known and to let God's Spirit inspire your gift. This is important to understand, and I think you get it. The more we raise up front, the less we have to borrow. Now, you might think, well, why not just borrow it all? We as leaders are committed to carrying responsible levels of debt. This room lived through 2008. We know what may seem attainable today can be wiped out with one big bank crisis. The more we collect up front, the more secure we are in, uh, in, a, in an unstable economic environment. There are four ways we want to encourage you to participate in what we're doing. And I begin by saying for all of us, the first is to do a personal review of just our regular giving. Every person here needs to ask, what does my generosity look like in terms of how I share responsibility for the needs of this place and for the people in the Southfield community of faith? We use a pretty simple evaluative question. If everyone was doing what I am doing, how would we be doing? I think that's a good question to ask anytime you're part of a community, whether it's a church, a team, whatever. If everybody was doing what I'm doing, how would we be doing? And I think it's a great question really to ask, ask of every aspect of our participation in community life, attendance. If everyone was doing what I'm doing, would this place be packed out and look like Easter every week? Or would we only need to be open once every four weeks or, or seasonally? Serving. If everyone was doing what I am doing, would we have too many volunteers for roles to be filled? Or would needs simply go unmet? Giving. If everyone was doing what I was doing, would, would we be doing phase two and phase three right now? Or would we literally not have a building at all? No staff and no church. In your folder every week, there's a list of numbers. We don't call attention to it. We don't talk about it. This is probably one of the last times you're going to hear about it. They're there every week. And it, they were actually put there several years ago by request of the congregation to say, give us an idea of what the need is. If you'll let us know what the need is, we'll step up to the need. And so as you look at it, it gives you what the budgeted amount is every year. This is the need we have to meet the needs we believe we're going to have throughout the year. What we did this year is actually put in a mortgage amount so that we could see how we're going to do in, in meeting this. So it gives you a weekly need amount of $10,777, and then it gives you the amount collected so far, and then a weekly average. And what you need to see is the weekly average right now is not as high as the weekly need. And you may look at that and go, okay, what's going on? I, a very simple answer, I believe, is that from not this past spring, but the spring before on through this coming January, we've had at least 10 families who have decided uh, Illinois is not the place to live anymore. And they've moved to other places. They're in Tennessee, and they're in Wisconsin, and they're in other places. And all of us are incredibly jealous of them and pounding down things in our heart that, that shouldn't be there. We understand that. But, but nonetheless, we've had some people step away who are now faithfully part of other places. And some holes have been created by that. So every one of us needs to look at what we're doing on a regular basis, beyond any special project. So... Beyond that, 
let's look uh, beyond regular giving to ways we, we can uh, specifically give toward this project. And I want to state the obvious before we do. It's not productive to cannibalize one's regular giving and relabel it building fund. You know, that shifting it doesn't really get the job done. We start with reviewing our regular giving. Then we ask, what can we do above what we've already committed? So the second is, much like we did when we built this building, to look at what we can do in terms of a one-time gift. This can happen really at any time. But let me just talk about the dynamics of this. Every amount brought in now delays the needs to draw on the mortgage. So if you already know what you're going to give, label it building fund and do it. It means we'll borrow less and we'll be able to borrow later, dropping the level of the accruing interest. And I believe there is one reason to hold off. Generosity is a spiritual growth issue. John's made that abundantly clear this morning. Writing a check is not necessarily an act of generosity. God wants our hearts, not just our wallets and purses. Even if you're ready to give today, I want to encourage you to enter into a season of praying about this. Talk to God about it. Maybe you'll use that that prayer that we had last week just as a way of asking God, how can I be generous the way you want me to be generous? Kim and I have known the project's been going on for a while, and so we committed to pray together. We prayed separately. And you know what happened? I was blown away that we came back with the same number. The same number. I truly believe we were both prompted by God to do that. To allow for a season of prayer, we're designating three Sundays right around Thanksgiving as, season, as days of ingathering. So November 19th, 26th, and December 3rd. Those three Sundays will be the time after a season of prayer to say, this is what I believe God wants me to give one time. Again, if you're ready to do so now, do it. But don't do it without talking to God. Talk to God about this. Because he wants to grow our generosity, not just, to, not just uh, raise money for a building. Now, reality is some of us would love to give, but we're in a spot. We have some work to do before we can do this. We may need to get our financial house in order. For those in that situation, you may decide to make a commitment on paper around that season to say, I cannot do this now, but by X date, this is what I plan to do. Maybe you have a bonus coming, but the bonus is coming in in January, maybe a tax return, but you know that comes later, and you're saying, this is what I'll do later. For those who would be good to aim at the end of the project, in other words, before the mortgage closes, again, the more brought in, the less we have to borrow. And finally, I'd like you to encourage you to consider what your family might do over the next two years. Again, over and above regular giving, what could you do on a weekly or monthly basis to say this is what God is calling us to give? In January, the calendar turns to 2018. Two years later, 2020. So, these gifts would be designated... From 2018 toward 2020, at chipping away at our mortgage, the sooner we pay it off, the sooner we have the freedom for other avenues of ministry that we can pursue. So review regular giving, a one-time gift at Thanksgiving time, or now if you're ready, a written commitment if you're saying, I'm not able to do it now, but this is what I hope to do by the end of spring, and a two-year commitment to chip away at the mortgage. When David called on the people to give, he did something incredible. He started the project off by saying, here's what I'm going to give. I read that this summer and I thought, you know, I've never done that before. I I, I haven't. I've had a variety of reasons for doing it and I've not done it before. So I prayed about it and so did Kim. We both agreed that God was moving us to start off by the, the giving, by saying this is what we're going to be doing. 
Like I said, we prayed and we came to the same number. We believe God wants us to give $25,000 toward this project. We believe God wants us to do this. Why? Because we believe in us. We believe in the future that God has called us toward. We believe in the Solomons and the next generation who will continue God's work in this place that has been going on since 1881. Now, I'm going to tell you about that amount, okay? This is the amount we've been saving over the years to replace two aging cars. Our 2003 Avalon is at 207,000 miles, and the Sienna is at 203,000 miles, ironically both given to us by Kim's dad, all right? As I prayed over that number and honestly wrestled with it, I thought about the things I'd like to do with that money. Because even though it was designated toward a car, you're always thinking there's something fun to do, right? My wife, we moved into our house in 2003. She's ready for some updating. She'd like fresh floors and a renewed kitchen. I hope to be a grandfather someday. When I do, I want my house to be the place they never want to leave. I'd love to put in a pool. That would be so fun. I've got a kid who, if I called today and said next year of Abilene is paid for, he'd jump up and down like nobody's business. I have a kid who wants to buy a house, and I could help him. I have a daughter who bought a house, and there's a basement waiting to be refinished, and it would be fun to do it for her. It would be a blast to take a huge family vacation, to finally take my wife away on an anniversary to remember. There's lots of things that we could do with what, that, what we've saved. But we believe in us. We believe in our future. We believe in fulfilling the redemptive potential of this community of faith. This is our way of publicly saying we are all in. We're all in. The video asks what may come. What may come if we were all in? The passage ends by David saying, Now then, who will follow my example and give offerings to the Lord today? And I have to admit, for me, saying those words out loud is much harder than saying this is what we're going to give. I am wired to carry the load myself, to do it for you, not to ask others to help. I hope that you are inspired. I think that was David's goal. Not guilt, not shaming, but inspiration. He was saying, I'm all in. Are you in too? And that's my ask for you today as we walk out of the doors. I'm in. Dennis and Kim are in. Are you too? Would you stand with me for closing prayer? Just before the service started, I got an email or a text from my wife. She said, Dad said this today, with pneumonia getting worse and falling blood pressure, I, am more, I have more to be thankful for than unthankful. God's grace still amazes me. Generosity is inspired by a realization that we have so much to be thankful for. That there is a mind-blowing, amazing grace that we can never outgive. As we walk from this place today, God, I hope that you will help us to think about our generosity, not just in an offering plate or at a church, but our generosity toward a coworker who we kind of look at sometimes and say, if you just, you know, help yourself, you'd be fine. A neighbor who's in a desperate situation and we just find ourselves saying, how much more can I do?
Grow on us generous hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. See you next Sunday.